You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. If you find your way back to your seats, please join me as we read the scripture for today. Turn with me to Psalm 78, verse 1 through 9. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but, t- but tell to the coming generation the glory- glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he had commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, but children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. This is God's word. Thank you, Shine. Psalm 78 uh, reminds me of a common phrase that I think about when I'm trying to figure out why do, why do difficult things happen? Why do we come into the struggle uh, in our lives? And really, you can, you can focus every kind of pain and brokenness fits into one of three categories. And here's the phrase that comes to my mind. We come into this world broken, people break us, and we break ourselves. We come into the world struggling. Sometimes the pain that we experience in life is just the result of being alive in a broken world. We can't put our finger on it. It's just we're broken people in a broken world. People break us. This one is obvious enough. Sometimes we struggle because we're victims, victims of betrayal and fraud and negligence, abuse. But then there's that other kind of suffering. We break ourselves, right? We shoot ourselves in the foot, so to speak. Uh, we might wonder, why, why am I miserable? Why are things going so poorly for me? It could just be you're just not a nice person. Uh, it could be maybe you're really disorganized. Uh, maybe you're really poor with money. And, and, and this is nobody's fault but, but your own. Uh, this psalm is a, a long reflection of a kind of suffering of the third kind. It's a long reflection of the kind of suffering that we encounter, nobody else's fault but but our own. The suffering that comes as a result of our past failures and past sins. Suffering that comes as a result of the consequences of decisions that were made contrary to God's guidance. And I'm glad this is in the Bible because so many of these psalms that we've been looking at uh, talk about how we go to God in prayer seeking comfort from our struggling that is caused by other people. And we know that we can go to God in times like this. God, I'm coming to you because there's things out of my control. Uh, People are cruel and wicked, and there's nothing I can do, and you are my only hope. I know we can come to God when other people are the problem, but do you know that you can go to God when you are the problem? You ever feel comfort in approaching God in prayer when your suffering is your fault? You know, it's easy to talk uh, to authority and someone in charge when somebody else is to blame. Uh, it's very difficult to talk to somebody in charge when you are the person to blame. You know, my child has, has never run into the room saying, Dad, 
we were all sitting on the carpet playing and everything was just fine. And then out of nowhere, I stood up and slapped my sister in the face. I don't know what came over me. Not once. Never have they said that. They're happy to come and share about how somebody else did that. I think authority figures are shocked when we, had, when we come admitting that we were the one that made the mistake, that we were wrong. It was, a few years ago, I was pulled over for speeding, and the officer comes to my window and, of course, says, do you know why I pulled you over? And I said, I, I know exactly why you pulled me over. I was going 65 in a 35. And he says, you're right. Didn't you, did you not see me driving behind you for two miles? I was right behind you the whole entire time. And I said, oh, no, I, I saw you the whole time. I knew you were there. And then he says, what were you thinking? And I said, I don't have a single good reason for you for why I was doing what I was doing. I simply wanted to get home quicker, and I didn't want to be in the car anymore. And he said, well, okay then. Thanks for being honest. Slow down. I don't know what to do when people just come out and admit. And I look in the back seat, and my kids say, what happened? And I say, nothing. Just <laughs> keep eating your goldfish crackers. <laughs> Everyone has a past. Everyone has a past. Everyone's been broken by their own sins. Everyone can point to things that this is, I am to blame. Everyone, everyone has a broken, broken past. And some of us have logged some pretty, pretty spectacular failures. Some of us have, have quite a, a resume of, of ways that we have failed God. But not everyone has learned from their failures. Not everyone has learned from their mistakes. And instead of learning well, they simply move on, right? Time heals all wounds we might think. We simply move on or, or try to avoid those mistakes again. Those things are in the past and we should move on and just and be the better person that we know that we should be. But we can actually learn a lot from our sins. If we're willing to embrace and remember our sins, we will learn a lot from them. It's painful. It's dark. It causes us to actually look back and admit what we have done, but if we are willing to do that, we can learn so much. And Psalm 78 helps us do that. We know right away that this is the purpose of this psalm by its title. Psalm 78 says, a mascal of Asaph. Asaph is the author, and a mascal is a song of instruction. It is meant to be sung or in a given for the way of teaching. It, the very purpose of it is to make us wise. The very purpose of it is to make us uh, better into the people that God desires for us to be. A, a couple weeks ago, I think it was, we, we looked at a psalm and we talked at great length of, uh, we were encouraged to count all the ways that, that, the ways that God loves us. Count all the ways that we love God. Right? Like we were, we were supposed to think of all the ways that God is good and we were supposed to express that love to him. This psalm encourages us to count all the ways that we have failed him. Anybody want to do that? Any volunteers? You know, the first question to consider even before getting much deeper into the psalm is, is, is this even a good idea? 
you know, conventional wisdom and psychology would say, that's not helpful. It's not helpful to rehash the past. It's not helpful to, to, to look back on all the ways you have failed. Let's start now. Let's draw a line in the sand and let's move forward into the kind of people that we want to be. We've all failed. Let's move on. Why dig up old bones? Why reopen old wounds? Let bygones be bygones. We've all failed. Well, those are good points, but Asaph takes a different approach. He says, we all want to be wise. We all want to prosper. We all want to live as God intends for us to live. And the only way to become what God desires us to become is to set our hope in him. It's what he says in verse 7. So, but how do we do that? How do we set our hope on God? The best way to do this is to notice how we have failed him. How, are, how generations of people have failed him. And to confront those ways that we have failed him, to count the ways we have failed him so that we would not repeat the past, but that we would savor the goodness of God all of our days. We want to find our hope in him. No one says, I want to wake up. No one wakes up in the morning and says, I don't want to find my hope in God. And yet we continue to fail him. The failures of God's people can be summed up in three different categories. We can see these categories so well that he even names them. The categories of, he says, our fathers, the people who have gone before us, the, the sins of the people, the, the family line of, of sinful attitudes and behaviors that have followed them for their whole lives. Here they are, rebellion, forgetfulness, and unfaithfulness. And only when we look at each one, only when we know what each looks like, can we begin to avoid them and see God's goodness in the midst of them. Why don't we begin with the sin of rebellion? It says that our, that our people have been rebellious, a rebellious generation. What comes to mind when you think of a rebel? What comes to mind when you think of uh, a rebellious person or attitude? First thing that comes into my mind, and I want to make sure you know this, it's well before my time, but the, the exaggerated depiction of James Dean, right, in 1955, the, the rebel without a cause, right, the famous movie of James Dean. Leather jacket, cuffed jeans, cigarette in hand, greaseback hair, right? That emotionally confused urban middle class male. Doesn't need anyone telling him what to do, answers to nobody. That's the rebel, a loner, right? That and Pee Wee Herman. Remember when he said that? But <clears throat> no? Okay. <clears throat> it's a narrow depiction of rebellion. That's how Hollywood has depicted the rebel and has continued to do so throughout generations. It's a narrow depiction. And for that reason, most of us don't see ourselves as the rebel. Most of us don't see ourselves as rebellious. But the Bible defines rebellion in a much broader sense that I think includes uh, more people than we think. Rebellion is the exchange of a truth for a lie. It's that simple. In order for rebellion to take place, a certain truth must be asserted. Rebellion doesn't happen in the absence of a law. And so God's truth is asserted. God's word is asserted. That's why a rebel is synonymous with the lawbreaker. God gives his law, his way of life. He gives his direction and his truth and his wisdom. To be rebellious is choosing what is right or wrong for oneself rather than relying on God's truth for direction. Psalm describes exactly how God's people committed the sin of rebellion. It was after they were freed from slavery. God rescued them. He heard their cries in slavery in Egypt. He frees them. 
He, he defeats the armies of Pharaoh. They escape to safety and they become hungry in the wilderness. They become thirsty in the wilderness. And they cried out for God, to God for help. And what did God do? He cracked a rock open and from it flowed fresh water. He said, they said, this is so refreshing and good. We're hungry now. And he has bread fall from the sky. And they said, you know, we'll, be really, we'll go really good with this bread would be some meat. And he brings fresh poultry. And what do they do? As they are eating on this food, they mumble under their breath. And it's a little dry. A little Miss Dash would be real nice right now. A little flavorless. You know, they had better food in Egypt. Yeah, we were, under, we were in slavery and we were getting beaten every day, but at least we had bread that was better. Rebellion is really having this general posture of mistrust. God, you don't know what's good for me. God, what you're providing for me, I think I could get better. They didn't trust that God's direction in the desert was good for them. They thought he was a horrible tour guide. They didn't trust that God had their best interests in mind. They didn't trust that God had provided a, a kind of adequate level of care. And so they wonder, does he, does he really know what's best? So let me ask you, do you see the rebel in you? The rebel who hears what God says and then wants a second opinion. The rebel sees what God provides and wonders if there's something better behind door number two. The rebel starts a sentence with, I know what you desire for me, God, but what's wrong with a little blank? The rebel who says, I'll take a little bit of that, but, but, but I'm going to listen to somebody else for, for their opinion. I want to balance it all out and I want to see which, which option is best for me. You see, the rebel is given the fullness of God, the fullness of God's wisdom and truth and provision, and then yet wonders if it's still enough. And says, I'm still not happy. I'm still not satisfied. Where else can I look? We don't need a leather jacket and a cigarette in hand and a, and a fist shaking at authority to be the rebel. To be a rebel is merely to see God's law and say, I don't know if that's right for me. And we can say it in a sweet tone. We could say it with a meek disposition. It's rebellious. It's rebellion nonetheless. He goes on and then there's unfaithfulness. You see, unfaithfulness doesn't mean that we just simply have a, a lack of faith. Rather, it means that we're disloyal. Unfaithfulness in marriage, and unfaithfulness in, in friendship, in relationship with God, it, it all happens for the same reason when we turn to something else to satisfy an empty heart. Disloyalty, unfaithfulness, it all happens when we're unsatisfied and we, and we turn from that relationship with God, with a spouse, with a friend, to try to, find, try to find something else to satisfy our empty heart. Unfaithfulness at its root is idolatry. This is what the psalm describes it as in this passage. Faithlessness, idolatry, describes it as worship. They turned away from worshiping God to worshiping idols. First year I became a Christian. I've been a Christian 20 years now. And, and, and I, I did what every Christian that I've known does the first year they become a Christian. I overreacted at everything. 
I was spiritually, overly spiritually zealous, and everything was serious. And I needed to know the right answer, the right way to go at every single moment. And it dawned on me in the first year that it, it paralyzed me that in any given moment, any thought, any emotion, any feeling, any action, I was either doing one of two things. I was either worshiping God or I was hating God. Any moment, right now, you, that you're doing one of two things. You're glorifying God or you're not. We will either worship God or we will worship some created thing. There's, it's not possible to worship nothing. You consider how we use the word unfaithful. We tend to think of, of unfaithfulness as the sin that we have committed. You know, adultery, cheating, uh, or being dishonest on a deal, saying you'll do one thing but doing another, that's being disloyal, being dishonest, it's being uh, a cheater. And being unfaithful is not just doing bad things, it's a failure to actually build our lives on the ultimate good thing that is God. Sin isn't just doing bad things, but it's making good things into ultimate things. Let me help you think of it this way. I wonder, I want you to consider when you sin and you're made aware of your sin, are you more fixated and are you more focused on the bad thing that you did that you don't want to do anymore and that you shouldn't have done and that you want to get better at? Or are you fixated on the good God that you didn't find your delight in in that moment? You know, I, I ask this because I want to show a point that most of the time when we are convicted of sin, it's because of the bad thing we did. I'm not going to do that anymore. Can you help me not do that? That was wrong. I shouldn't have done it. And what we're talking about is the negative thing rather than, God, I didn't find my pleasure in you. I didn't delight in you. I wasn't worshiping you. I wasn't being satisfied in you. But I ran somewhere else to find my satisfaction. Unfaithfulness to God isn't just the bad things that we do. It's a failure to not make God our ultimate in every area of our life. Verse 57 says that the unfaithful people, the unfaithful people of God were like a, a warped bow in the hands of an archer. Picture that, a, a, bow, a bow that is held in the hands of an archer. He lines up the arrow, he steadies his hand, he lets the arrow fly, everything is marked perfectly, but it doesn't go the way he wants. It, it veers off. It veers off to the left or to the right. It doesn't go straight, and he thinks he did everything right. What could be wrong? The arrow was chosen perfectly. His line of sight was perfect. He removed all obstacles. Why did the arrow go crooked? He doesn't realize that his bow is warped. And the warped bow for the archer is the warped heart for the Christian who is unfaithful to God. No one wants to be unfaithful. No one desires to be drawn away from God. No one desires to wander from his love. No one wakes up in the morning and says, I think I'll drift from the loving care of God's mercy today. And yet our hearts are warped because we're always worshiping. We're always turning to something to satisfy our empty hearts. We wander from tethering our hearts to God. Do you see 
ways that you are unfaithful? Do you see yourself as an unfaithful or faithless person? Well, if not, I promise the next one will do the trick. Forgetfulness. He calls out the sin of forgetfulness. There's a a pattern in this psalm and really a pattern for the whole history of God's people. And it goes like this. God is good and he blesses his people with countless blessing. And God's people enjoy the blessings of God and they are filled with joy. And God warns them of the danger of turning from him and his commands. And the people disobey God. And God disciplines them because he loves them as a loving father. And the people, burdened by the pain of their sin, cry out to God for rescue. God hears them, is gracious to them. He rescues them. He reaffirms his love to them. And God's people enjoy the blessings of God once again. And then God's people forget everything that ever happened, and they start over again. This is the story of the Bible. I just told you the story of the Bible, the whole Bible in like 34 seconds. You got it all. Still read it. It's good. So this, this is the whole story. Verse 37 to 39 tells of this story. It says they weren't steadfast toward God. They forgot his promises. They forgot the pain of his discipline. Steadfast. They, they weren't alert. And this wasn't a deliberate act. They weren't to be not steadfast is not a deliberate act of rebellion like before. It is a wandering because they weren't careful. They weren't thoughtful. They weren't aware and alert. They weren't sober in their heart. But then it says, but God remembered that they were but flesh. That's a really nice way of saying God knew that they were blockheads. That's a PG word. I'm, I'm choosing my words carefully. This is God saying, I know that, it's like God saying, they're just people, they're idiots, like, they're, they're flesh. Here, here's what you'll see through the pages of history. You will see our history. You'll see our story. Here are phrases that you will see through our story. They did not remember they did not remember, they did not remember, they did not remember, they did not remember. That's the story of our generations of God's people. It's a story of our lives. Let me ask you, if you had a family member who, if, if your family has a long history of osteoporosis, You would do wise to ensure that you had a nutritious diet with adequate calcium, with vitamin D. You would do well to participate in strength-building exercises. If every male in your family had cardiovascular disease, you you would control your blood pressure, you would keep your cholesterol low, you would manage stress and engage in exercise, right? This, this is our family. These are the sins of our family. This, are, this is the, the hereditary disease of our family. What do you do when you know that you are prone to forget God's goodness? Well, the air is human. No! This is a sickness. It's a disease that has followed God's people forever. My guess is sometime this week, you've struggled. Sometime this week, 
you have already, you've already wondered if God loves you as much as he says he does. You've felt crushed under the weight of your responsibilities of life. You've felt crushed under the burden of temptation of sin that has come your way. Maybe you felt even you've become puffed up with the pride of how well things are going in your life. Maybe things are going so well that for a moment you actually stopped and thought, I don't even think I talked to God once this week, and I'm doing fine. Maybe the blockheads are out there. Maybe the ones who need God's grace and mercy are somewhere else. Maybe I don't need God as much as I thought I did. We forget. We forget our sins. We forget how much we need God. We forget how far we've wandered from God. It is a family disease. And we gather to remember. We gather as his people knowing that we are forgetful. Is that why you came this morning? Did you come knowing that you needed to hear the same thing over again because you just forgot? We gather to hold fast our confession. We come to hold fast of our conviction of the good news of God and who he is, what he's done for us to rescue us, to save us. Our our gathering on Sunday mornings is is never meant to be a, a motivational speech or an inspirational talk to help you be a better person, to help you live better lives. Our gathering is remembering of God's saving work and his delivering of his people from the bondage of sin for our, our good and his glory. It is for us to savor the goodness of God and say, oh yeah, I forgot. I forgot where my hope rests. I forgot where my desires are truly satisfied. There is so much irony in this psalm. If you read it, we only read the first nine verses. It's a summary. It's an introduction. And the rest of the psalm really just fleshes out those three sins in in a broader way. I commend it to you to read it, to see specifically how they sinned against God. But there's so much irony. God, over and over again, he expresses how angry he is at their sin. And yet, he's also merciful. He is furious at their rebellion and their stupidity, but he is compassionate. He commands them to obey, and they do not obey. So the psalmist says, come and listen. Open your ears and hear what I have to say. Teach them to your children. Remind them so that we don't forget, and that he counts all the ways that we have failed God in detail. But then he ends the psalm with a solution to their rebellion, their faithlessness, their forgetfulness. And it's, and it's not in them all of a sudden to stop being blockheads. The solution is not, okay, you guys got it. You, you understand all the details of how you've been faithless and forgetful and rebellious. Don't do that anymore. The solution for all our failures will come about In the last couple verses, the psalmist said God is going to build a temple that will last forever and he will bring a king whose reign will never end. The temple was God's pledge to his people that he would always be with him. The temple was this visible pledge 
that God was among his people, that he dwelt among them, that he loved them and was present with them, that he had relationship with them and friendship with them. And the kingdom of David, the king of God's people, the earthly king of God's people was God's pledge that he will always lead them, he will always guide them, he will always protect them from their enemies, he will always uh, rule over them with love. The solution will be found in this king who was a shepherd. This shepherd king who would reign forever. Does this remind you of anybody that we come to learn about in the pages of Scripture? Of course, this psalm points to Jesus, not only in a general way that he was the servant king, but a specific way. Here's how. In all the way that God's people were tempted, in all the ways that God's people failed God, he names these sins, rebellion, faithlessness, forgetfulness. You see, the Israelites' greatest failures in the wilderness were also Jesus' greatest temptations in the wilderness that we see in the Gospel of Matthew, even in this same order. You see, God's people were tempted with food and appetite for food, and Jesus was tempted with food. But he said to God's word is my food. God's people sinned and worshiped an idol and Jesus was tempted with riches and long life in exchange for worshiping the devil. And he said, you should not worship any other God but the true God. God's people tested God and Jesus remembered God's promises. Psalm 78 does summarize all the ways that we have failed to obey, follow, worship, and remember God. And the New Testament summarizes all the ways Jesus didn't fail in those exact ways. This psalm points to our remedy for all the ways we have failed God, not by giving us an option or an opportunity to, to do better at all of those sins. He provides a remedy by showing us himself that was tempted in the same ways yet didn't sin. Yeah, this psalm is, is not just a review of facts, not just a, bare, a review of bare facts of sinful history and Jesus' history. It's meant to draw our attention to the solution for our greatest need. Why, why spend a whole morning in sermon? Why spend a whole psalm? This is meant to be sung in church. It's meant to be spoken out loud among God's people. Why spend all this time just saying, now I want you to remember of all the things you've done horrible in your life. I want to get them in real deep into your mind and heart so you don't forget. What's the point of that? To make you feel bad? Not primarily. It's to draw our attention to asking the question, what do we do now? Where's our hope? Who's going to fix this? We have this disease. We have this congenital, family, hereditary disease that we cannot fix. We rebelled against God and, and, and faced God's rejection, but Jesus was rejected so that we could be accepted. We were unfaithful to worship God and to obey the first commandment and to worship Him and Him only, and so we faced eternal alienation. And Jesus was alienated, and we are accepted. We forget God's blessing, and we faced perpetual condemnation and loneliness, and Jesus was condemned in our place so that we could be forgiven. At the cross, Jesus offered himself as a substitute, 
for us, taking upon himself the deadly wrath that we deserve. In a single event, God welcomes home the rebellious, the unfaithful, the forgetful. In one act, he he, he casts our sin as far east as from the west. There is rebuke for sin. There is consequence for sin. But if you come to God in the name of Jesus, there will always be grace for sin. Because it is a grace that forgives. It's grace that transforms. As you, as you think about how you go from here, you may be wondering, well, I've, I've failed God so much that I'm going to fail Him again. And you are right. It's part of our history. It will be a part of our future in this world. But a lack of sin and an increase of our character is never going to be good enough. We need one who is perfect, who didn't rebel against God, who wasn't unfaithful, who wasn't forgetful. We need him to take our sin. And when he does that, he gives us his righteousness so that when we come to him in faith, we are looked at by God as if we have never rebelled. We have never turned away. We have never been unfaithful. We have never cheated. We have never forgotten. It's not enough to just recognize that we have sinned. It's not enough just to regret sin and wish that we were better. We have to hate our sin. We have to see and remember the ways that we have run from God. We have to see the rebel inside ourselves. We have to see the unfaithful. We have to see the forgetful inside ourselves. We must remember the weight of condemnation and what it feels like. We must repent of our sin and turn from that, turning to hope in what God provides through Jesus. And we must not forget what God did to reestablish our relationship with him. God's people have failed him. For generations, we have their story right before us. If God, if someone wrote a book for you, see, we have the history of God's people. If God wrote your story, where would he show how you have failed him? You will continue to fail him. That book will not stop being written. But he will never fail you. He has proven that he will never fail us even though we continue to fail him. He rushed into the chaos of our sin. He took upon himself the pain and punishment of our guilt. He rose from the grave, triumphing over death and sin. He casts our sin far away. He remembers them no more. And he welcomes us into a beloved friendship and a bond that is so secure it will never be broken. He is always faithful. He's always steadfast. He is always loyal. He's always with us. Put your rest in him. Let's pray.